Our first scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of Psalms. We will be reading Psalm 23. There is a sung refrain that Graham is going to teach us, and then we will say the verses responsively. Shepherd me, O Lord, beyond my wants, beyond my fears, from death into life. Shepherd me, O God, beyond my wants, beyond my fears, from death into life. Listen for what the Spirit is saying to the church this morning. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Shepherd me, O God, beyond my wants, beyond my fears, from death into life. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Shepherd me, O God, beyond my wants, beyond my The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of Luke, the 12th chapter, verses 13 to 21. Listen again for what the Spirit is saying to the church. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set you, who set me to be a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. 
And he thought to himself, what should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, mm, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build bigger ones, and I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich towards God. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? God, as we come into your presence this morning listening for a word from you, I pray that the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we meet Jesus this morning traveling to Jerusalem. It's a long trek. He's going to do it for about six chapters. Teaching, healing, prophesying along the way. And for a couple of chapters now, he's been talking with the Pharisees and lawyers, navigating crowds and telling people about the coming reign of God. And in the middle of all of these discussions, we get this story of a man who seeks Jesus out in order to ask him to weigh in on a personal family matter. Jesus, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Hmm. You ever prayed that prayer? God, that person has so much, just give me what they have. Or make it even. Make it fair. I don't want all of it, just some, just enough. Lord, if I were in, those sho in their shoes, you know I would be sharing the wealth. Please, God, just intercede and level the playing field so I can have what I need too. But Jesus refuses to play referee in this family dispute. Instead, he offers a warning about greed, and as he is wont to do, he tells a parable. A story about a rich man, his wealth, and what happens to him. It's not a super comfortable story for this young, I imagine, or for us. And it's tempting, or at least it was for me, to read this scripture and immediately start to distance myself from it. Okay, sure, God, the text says things about wealth and possessions, but that's not really me, God. I mean, there are really rich people in the world, right? It couldn't be about me. But as I sat with it more, I realized that that defensiveness that I felt is part of the point about what the scripture has to tell us. Just because a text is hard doesn't mean we shouldn't engage with it. If the gospel doesn't occasionally make us uncomfortable, it's probably not really the gospel. After all, Jesus certainly wasn't known for making people comfortable with the status quo. And in fact, for most of this trip to Jerusalem, Jesus has been asking people to do the exact opposite of what's comfortable, to sit with the hard things to mull over uncomfortable truths, to re-examine their behaviors and assumptions, and to be open to something bigger and deeper and more profound that his 
ministry heralds. I am not Jesus, so I don't know that I can promise all of you all that in a sermon. But having spent time with the scripture this week, thinking and praying and reading and listening, I do think that there are three key things we can take away from the text this morning, and I will shout out the three theologians who helped me get there. We have the Almond Brothers, observing that you can't take it with you. We have the late 1990s prophet, the notorious B.I.G., Mo Money, Mo Problems. And we have the Beatles, Money Can't Buy Me Love. So let's start at the beginning. You can't take it with you. That one's the most straightforward. A rich man's land produces abundance. He sees the abundance and immediately moves to tear down his barn so he will have it for a long time. And then God shows up and demands his soul, and it becomes clear that none of it matters. You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? This man has spent a lifetime stockpiling wealth. And in the moment of truth before God, it just doesn't matter. That's a pretty straightforward story as Jesus' stories go. He hears this young man demanding that he referee a family fight and tell his brother to share. And he responds with a story that says, you're missing the point. What your brother has doesn't matter. Stuff doesn't matter. You can't take it with you. Move on. Great. Done. Dusted. Sermon over. Let's sing. But wait, there's more. Because this parable doesn't just come out of left field. It's a specific response to this person who has asked the question. It's preceded by a warning to be on your guard against all kinds of greed. The Greek here is also covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, which means it's also a parable about the hazards of an abundance of possessions. More money, more problems. More isn't always better. See, some scholars and biblical grammarians, including commentators in uh, one of the versions I read, have suggested that while we can certainly understand God's address to the rich man, you fool, this very life, your night, your, this very night, your life is being demanded of you, as a kind of ironic twist as he dies unexpectedly, it's maybe more accurate to read God's observation as being about the overwhelming claim of the man's possessions on his life. In this reading, Jesus identifies the young man's desire to have more and tells him a story of what it could be like to have everything. You could have everything. You could be this man in this story and you would still not be happy. You would still not be free from want. Instead, it's quite possible that the things you have would begin to consume your life. In this story, the man is not coming into wealth. He is already rich. He already has abundance. His problem is not that he has no barns to store things. It's that he has huge barns full of stuff, and they're full, so he doesn't have room for the excess. 
He should be happy. And yet, he's racked with anxiety. He gets more, and his first thought is, Oh God, what if it all goes away and I have nothing? How can I relax when my abundance has overflowed? It's just lying out there in the field. I'm not storing it. I'm not optimizing it. What if I miss out on the full future potential of this windfall? He's spiraling. He gets more, and his first thought is a capital improvement project. He gets more, and it immediately consumes every waking thought. Instead of experiencing his abundance as relief, it triggers a deep-seated sense of scarcity and fear. Have you ever experienced that? That scope creep of having more? The moment where something that at one point felt like abundance begins to morph into obligation or even something precarious? Are there places in your life where the things you have feel less like a blessing than a constantly weighing responsibility? It's not a great feeling. And it's frustrating because those moments are exactly the opposite of what we were promised they would be. We live in a world that constantly tries to sell us stuff. Stuff to make you stronger, faster, younger, healthier, happier, fuller, more peaceful, more complete. And on a two-day delivery schedule. But more broadly, it's a sales technique that thrives on scarcity. At a certain price point, maybe we call it exclusivity. But regardless, there's always a next best thing. Which means even though we have moments of feeling secure, the value of the thing that we're clinging to is fundamentally and intentionally unstable. More money, more problems. And yet we still want it. We still chase after it. At a certain point, it becomes how we relate to the people around us. Stuff becomes the mediator of our relationship. It tells us who to care about, who we can ignore, who to prioritize. And those things we wanted so much begin to estrange us from one another. And that's the largest thing Jesus is pointing at. This parable matters because at the heart of the question posed by this man is a profound anxiety, a pervasive mistrust, and grief about a broken relationship. Scarcity and fear estrange us from our loved ones and communities, aka money can't buy you love. See, to understand the enormity of what is at stake here, we have to go back to the initial question posed by this young man. And at first glance, sure, his request may sound petulant. Jesus, make my brother share his inheritance with me. If you are a parent in the room, this might sound familiar. Sounds like a kid complaining about who gets the toys. But there's an important piece of cultural context here which is that according to Deuteronomy 21.17, the oldest son by law receives double the youngest's share. So when we hear this question, we have to ask, what's going on with this man and his brother? I think we can assume things are not going well. 
Because though we don't get his life story, we can observe that whatever his circumstances, they have clearly become dire enough that he's left his home to seek out an alternative religious leader to get a judgment on settled Jewish law that would be more advantageous to him in the situation he's currently in. It's not the kind of thing one does if one's familial and community relationships are going well. There's no sense from him in his question that he trusts that people around him will show up to love thy neighbor and help out. For whatever reason, this man feels he, is, he needs more than what is customarily due to him, and he is going to do whatever it takes on his own to make sure he is personally okay, safe, and secure. But Jesus looks at this man and identifies exactly how alone he has become and how his actions are driven by scarcity and fear. And he tells him a story that throws that isolation in sharp relief. Writing about this parable, commentators have noticed the prevalence of the word I whenever the rich man speaks. There is a sense of this person as self-centered, focused, greedy. He has so much, he cannot even store it all. And yet he is alone. He has abundance and he is so afraid of losing it that he has become estranged from his community. At no point in this story does this person stop and ask themselves, could I use this to help people? Could I use this to benefit my community? With all that I have, what is the responsibility, my responsibility to the people around me? Instead, he spends his time focused solely on himself, tending to his anxiety and consumed by the idea of ensuring a permanent life of ease. The only time other people enter the picture is sort of in a shaded way when God literally points out their absence. This very night, your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? The question just kind of hangs in the air. There's no family. There's no friends, no community that this man immediately pulls to mind. There's just silence and all of his stuff. And it is not good for humans to be alone. There is a difference, Jesus says, between what we think we want and what we need. And not everything will satisfy, no matter how certain we are that it will. We can be so busy pursuing or clinging to the tangible things that we miss the people around us, the other people singing, who are also making our lives rich. So the good news this morning is that God is not a God of stuff. God is a God of a deeper abundance of relationship, of healing. And God is interested in our wholeness, not in a wealth gospel kind of way, but as a church, as a people, as a creation. We are invited in this space to divest our sense of self-worth from our paycheck or our address or our portfolio returns or our possessions. We are invited to become rich in God called into something fuller and infinitely more fulfilling than what we can achieve alone.
invited to take notice of those around us, invited to be changed by them and they by us as we build a world of connection and community where everyone has enough. Maybe so. Amen.